Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Dr. Mary Landon Darden will introduce Texas history writers who will tell dramatic and often little known Texas tales right here on Treasures of the Texas Collection. Welcome to the Treasures of the Texas Collection, brought to you by Baylor University Libraries, KWBU-FM, and William and Kathleen Wardlaw. Join me for a trip back in time to the end of the 19th century in Central Texas. In 1890, Waco was one of the biggest cities in Texas. It was larger than Dallas, San Antonio, and El Paso. It was also home to one of the longest spanning suspension bridges in the United States. But Waco's real fortune lay in cotton. Since the city's founding in 1849, farmers began growing, ginning, and shipping this white gold to ports in Galveston and New Orleans. From there, it was sent to Europe, South America, and India. The city averaged 50,000 bales of cotton a year, 900,000 pounds of wool, and 500,000 pounds of hides every year. Until the Great Depression in the 1930s, Waco was the undisputed cotton king. The citizens of Waco decided to create a monument to cotton success, an exhibition that would showcase the cotton capital of the world. And in 1894, the Texas Cotton Palace was born. Austin freelance writer Hans Christensen discovered, as he researched this proud part of Waco's history, that the reign of the Cotton Palace would be short-lived. Welcome, Hans. Thanks, Mary. It's great to be here. If you will, tell us about the early days of the famous Cotton Palace. Well, the first Texas Cotton Palace opened November 6, 1894, and it was a magnificent wooden structure measuring 300 feet by 50 feet. It was a one-story building with a two-story auditorium in the annex, and its great hall could fit up to 5,000 people. In short, it was a setting for the ultimate party. When visitors came inside, they were really in for a treat. The top of the wall had a black background depicting the chariot race from the 1880 novel Ben-Hur, which was also the basis for the famous Charlton Heston movie. <laughs> the figures were made of lint cotton glued to the black wall. And along with the figures, there were also coats of arms representing all the states in the Union at the time. But I think the, the most interesting thing was an artificial eagle made out of red and yellow corn that had 20-foot wingspan that hung above the entrance. 20-foot wingspan of yellow and red corn. That's amazing. Certainly, these were elaborate and costly decorations for the time and the region, what were the initial reactions of the people as they came through these magnificent gates for the first time and saw this splendor? Well, you know, I think it was unlike anything they had seen before. There were exhibits featuring mementos and souvenirs from the Civil War from both the North and the South. There were paintings, miniature gardens, and furniture displays. And one of the m more popular exhibits belonged to Mrs. S.W. Slayton. Apparently it featured a Greek slipper, a shingle taken from Nantucket Island's historic mill, and a splinter of wood from the gun that fired the opening shot of the Civil War at Fort Sumter. And there was also a midway with amusement rides and shooting galleries, and daredevil performers, fortune tellers, and other sideshows. And, of course, there were food and refreshment stands, so in a lot of ways, probably similar to a modern state fair. But I think the biggest draw was Captain C.A. Westbrook's Shetland ponies, or the horses of Lilliput, as they were called. 
These were, these were 35 ponies ridden by young women from Waco who excelled at performing tricks in um, creative writing. Wow. I know that each day the um, Texas Cotton Palace featured a different theme, and such a magnificent location would certainly call for equally magnificent events. Um, what were some of the themes, and how were they enacted? Well, the first day opened with a parade. You know, it started. the procession started from downtown and went to the main auditorium. And it was led by Texas Governor Jim Hogg and his escort, and he was joined by the city council, the Waco Police Department, Baylor Cadets, the Waco Union Band, and even private private citizens in their own carriages. Once they got to the Cotton Palace, Governor Hogg spoke before the coronation of King and Queen Cotton. And basically everyone in town showed up and probably from the surrounding areas. And they also found a variety of vendors. There were balloon salesmen and organ grinders with trained monkeys. And each day had a, had a specialty theme. For instance, there were Children's Day, Flower Day, Dallas Day, Fireman's Day, Labor Day, Railroad Day, Wheelman's Day, and really my favorite, Secret Society Day, which oh. I'm, not, I'm not quite sure how they went ahead promoting that. They say something like, uh, well, we'd promote this, but it's a secret, right? I, I guess so. <laughs> Uh, these kinds of events would certainly require some kind of musical performance. Um, tell us about the musical acts that performed at the Palace events. Well, the house band, so, so to speak, was Fred Finney's Iowa State Band, which was pretty famous at the time. And they performed daily concerts along with playing for the parades and the dances. And the band was very stylish as they were all clad in white cotton suits. Wow. But I think one of my favorite stories involving music... Um, was with singer Ellen Beach Yaw, who was a leading prima donna of the time. Apparently during one of her evening performances, a small fire broke out on the stage and started filling the auditorium with smoke. So instead of panicking, Yaw continued to sing at the top of her lungs. <laughs> Somehow this had a calming effect on the crowd, who just kind of exited quickly but orderly, and thankfully no damage was done to property or the singer. Well, that's a wooden building, too, so that's a scary thing to have a fire. The first king and queen of the Texas Cotton Palace were crowned in an elaborate ceremony, and they wore equally elaborate regalia, a tradition, a tradition that has continued today. Um, what was the first coronation ceremony like? Well, it was the grand event, and it was called the Harvest Carnival. So basically it was a pageant followed by a grand ball. So you had an audience of 4,000 people witnessing the coronation, and you had colorful characters and costumes. For instance, you had Ceres, the goddess of agriculture. You had the goddess of fortune and father time. And at the end of the coronation, Cotton and Texas, the royal couple, were joined in marriage. Cotton was declared king of agriculture, and Texas was named queen of fortune. And, of course, the crowd applauded as the Iowa band burst into a rousing rendition of Dixie. <laughs> It sounds like the inaugural Texas Cotton Palace event must have been pretty spectacular for folks that were accustomed to an agricultural life and the Texas frontier. Um, was the Harvest Festival a great success? It was a huge success. They had delegations come as far away as St. Louis and Chicago, and it really the event was a crown jewel for Waco. So not long after they closed its doors, they already started planning for the 1895 Cotton Palace, and it was going to be bigger and better. But that actually never happened. About six weeks after closing the gates on a cold January night, a fire broke out in the exhibition hall. And since it was a wooden structure, and by the time anyone realized it, it was too late. So um, there were newspaper reports that t at least 10,000 Wakoans stood by and watched the t 
Texas cotton palace burned to the ground, and fire and smoke was reported up to 22 miles away. Wow. This had to be devastating for the thousands of citizens who contributed so much to the success of the new tradition and the landmark building. How did the Waco citizens respond? Well, people were devastated. You know, not only was there time and energy lost, but there was an initial $40,000 investment for materials, and it was a total loss. There was no insurance for the property. But the interesting thing was that news of the tragedy spread around the country. In fact, the New York Times reported on January 26, 1895, that plans were already underway to construct a new fireproof structure made out of steel and brick. And the new Cotton Palace cost would be around $100,000. But it never actually got out of the planning stage. Well, we know that it wasn't the end of the Cotton Palace story because we still have pageants today, and then there's a sign just off the southbound 35 um, that says Cotton Palace and has an arrow pointing to the right. Yes, um, the Cotton Palace was closed for more than a decade, but it actually reopened again in 1910. Um, There was a group formed called the Young Men's Business League, and part of their creation was to get the Cotton Palace up and running again. So they took the lead in planning and raising money, and in April of 1910, they had sold stock and raised nearly $100,000 to get the building going again. Wow. And they also realized they needed a larger tract of land this time. So they partnered with the city and purchased Paget Park. And the agreement stated that the park would be only used for the Cotton Palace during the exhibition dates, and the rest of the year would function as a city park. Tell us about the new, improved Texas Cotton Palace. You know, how was it different from the original one? This time it was bigger and better. And it actually had a triangular design, so it was surrounded by Clay Street, South 16th, Dutton Avenue, and Waco Creek with visitors entering the grounds at around 13th and Clay. So there was a main building which sat in the center and featured turrets and a central dome and kind of resembled a small regal palace. The nearby Coliseum offered seating, this time up to 10,000 spectators. And there was also an automobile building, a poultry building, and a combined floral and machinery building. And a few other buildings in the Cotton Palace included... Um, livestock barns, a smaller auditorium, along with a football field and a racetrack. And there's even story of a small zoo being operated at one point near Clay Street. <laughs> okay, well, the size and scope of this venue would require substantial numbers of activities to draw and engage that size of a crowd. What were some of the events that took place in the new facility? Well, there was plenty to choose from. You know, they had a fine arts division showcasing works of art, a professional loan collection featuring high-value artwork, um, along with fun exhibits like the Cotton Modeling Contest. In this contest, which was open to everyone, figures had to be made of raw, absorbent, or jeweler's cotton or cotton batting. I mean, I can't imagine a contest with modeling with cotton. That had to be a unique event. Yeah, you know, I think it must have been. Um, You know, they had some stipulations. They could color the cotton with paint, ink, or diamond dye but they had to preserve the natural fluffy texture of the cotton. And they could also use wire, cardboard, or wood in the construction, but the outside had to be covered entirely with cotton. And cash prizes were awarded for the top three spots. How much How much could they get for something like this? Well, if you were an adult, you could get $15, $10, or $5, and kids could win $5, $3, or $2.50. It sounds like it's a little more than what their materials would cost, or did they supply them? Or do you know? You know, I'm not sure, but I think it was probably a pretty good return for, for a prize like that for the time. And, you know, there was actually a funny category I found, which was called old ladies' work. 
and the requirements stated, all work in this class must have been made by a lady six, 60 years or older, which apparently was considered old for the time. Interesting. It appears that the event was you know, kind of like a state fair and was primarily agricultural in nature, but did they include animal shows or related features in that area? You know, they did. There was the typical livestock, cattle, horses, pigs, sheep, chickens, goats, and turkeys. Um, I found an interesting description written by a teenager named Curt- Curtis Nixon in 1924. Part of his high school essay read, After we got into the Cotton Palace grounds, the first department we went to was the poultry department. The first kind of chicken I saw was the bantam chickens. The only thing I noticed about them was that they had feathers on all their legs and feet. <laughs> and he also went on to describe in his essay um, some very nice corn raised by the McLennan County Boys Corn Club and an electronic chicken hatcher that reportedly held up to 75,000 eggs. 75,000 eggs at one time? I guess so. It must have been a very large chicken hatcher. <laughs> That's fascinating. Didn't the Cotton Palace Poultry Show have a rather broad-spectrum popularity? You know, it did. And by 1930, the poultry show was the largest event in the Midwest. And I found kind of an interesting newspaper story from September 30th, 1930, advertising the following. The 1930 turkey show promises to be unusual. Liberal prizes are being offered on turkeys. Most of the prize money is on the bronze turkey classes. And nationally known judges are being selected and will be on hand to discuss the fine points regarding these fowls. Let's talk about the gala balls at the Texas Cotton Palace. I know they, too, must have been particularly elegant occasions for a Texas community at that time. They were. You know, most of the other events leading up to this point were open to the public, but this was considered a society event. In fact, probably the biggest society event of the year. You know, each ball had a theme based on a country, such as Spain or China. Um, They also had elaborate decorations and costumes that were modeled from royal gowns and robes all around the, around the world. And they also had visitors from states and countries. Um, the royal court featured princesses, duchess and, duchesses, and attendants. And even the New York Times Society page described the 1922 coronation. Miss Clotilda Brazelton crowned Queen in Waco at the ceremonies of the Texas Cotton Palace, an elaborate pageant of the court of Louis XVI, <laughs> attended by princesses from nearly every state in the Union. The same page also mentioned a Miss Eleanor Wheeler of Washington, D.C., who was chosen by U.S. President Harding and Mrs. Harding as her delegate to the Texas Cotton Palace. So I'm not sure if the president ever made it, but certainly the event was on their social radar. Fascinating. I understand that uh, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson was also invited to the opening of the Texas Cotton Palace in 1913. Did he attend? You know, I couldn't find any record of his attendance, but I did find a handwritten letter signed by the Texas governor, Waco mayor, and several area businessmen to the president. And um, oh, Can you read it for us? <laughs> absolutely. It's, it's a lot of fun. It reads, To His Excellency Woodrow Wilson, President of the United States of America, The great state of Texas, realizing its part in giving to the United States the benefit of your wise and patriotic administration, and desiring that your first visit from Washington be made to the state, has ever been your bulwark of democracy, does by and through its governor and the officials of the fair city of Waco invite you to be present and participate at the opening of the Texas Cotton Palace on November 1st, 1913, at Waco, the heart of Texas. Wow. Hans, moving ahead a decade or so, the 1923 ball was quite an ordeal. Besides the invitees, uh, what were some of the other things that made it special? The 1923 ball, or the 
the Persian court was one of the most elaborate courts ever. The throne room featured Persian draperies, cushions, tapestries, and oriental rugs. In fact, author Lavania Jenkins Barnes described the event in her book, The Texas Cotton Palace. It reads, Pomp and splendor were at their height when in 1923 the Palace of Persepolis, with its winged entrances, facades, and elaborately embellished throne room, formed a setting for the Persian court. And you know, the costumes were just as detailed as the furnishings. For instance, the Grand Caliph wore a robe embroidered in silver and pearls. The maid of honor to the queen wore a gauze veil that covered her face and a costume of silver cloth. But I think the most elaborate costume, be- costume belonged to Queen Pauline Brustet. It was designed by New York costumer Peggy Hoyt and represented the peafowl, the queen of birds. The dress featured emerald chiffon trousers shot with gold and fastened with anklets set with emeralds and topazes. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, tiny gold and turquoise beads were woven into material, and the gown's train even featured real peacock feathers. Impressive. And of course, you cannot have a dance without music. What types of dances were the rage at that time, and what songs were played at the ball? Well, you know, I, I found some little dance cards from Texas Cotton Palace, and they were, they were very cute. They were petite cards with little pencils attached with a shimmery braided rope. And it looks like they were given to the, to the girls who attended so they could write down the songs they danced to. So on one card, dated 1916, it looked like people were dancing to the, dancing the One Step, the Waltz, and the Foxtrot. On another card from 1917, um, I found the following songs, Mammy's Little Coal Black Rose, Southern Roses, Hawaiian Butterfly, If You Ever Get Lonely, and Alpine Sunset. And I think my favorite card was one that actually didn't have a name written on it, but on the back there were names and phone numbers of apparently eight um, boys who were potential suitors for the the girl dancing. Aha. Well, let's talk a little more about the costumes. Those costumes are fabulous. Um, What about the costume designer, Aura Tanner Hooker? Well, you know, Aura studied costume design and pattern cutting in New York City before she moved to Waco in 1920 to open her own private shop. And after she got here, she was a fan of the pageant, but it wasn't until 1924 that she was hired to sew 10 butterfly costumes. Um, but these costumes were pretty elaborate. They were made of gold metal gauze, and the body was sheared into a lining, and they also had huge transparent wings made of spring steel attached to the back of the costumes. The wings were covered with gold gauze and studded with jewels. Aura was paid $10 per costume for a total of $100. Well, that sounds like pretty good money for 1924. You know, I would think so, but Aura apparently was quick to point out to many of her customers who sometimes balked at her prices that she was supplying all the materials. So after you factor in the materials and other labor to help make them, she made a profit of about a dollar per costume. And after that, it wasn't until four years later in 1928 that she was hired again, to, des- to des- this time to design outfits for all the Waco princesses. Mm. And she says her favorite dress was for, she made for the, made to the queen, a girl named Eugenia Nash. And actually, for a time, this dress was displayed at the historic Earl Harrison House. Aha, uh-huh. I know where that is. And I guess the crowning achievement of this dress was the especially long train. And Aura described the train in a 1975 interview. It was made of silver brocaded metal cloth, and it was designed with a coral dragon. His head started at the top, and he wormed his way around the tail. His tail came around like this, and we made the dragon out of coral-colored stones. There's a long-running rivalry between Baylor University and Texas A&M University, just to change subjects a little bit. 
and it can be traced back to the Cotton Palace. Can you tell us how this all began? Well, in 1926, there was a homecoming game at the Cotton Palace football stadium. And at some point during the game, um, a fight broke out and it cleared both bleachers. And before order was restored, a tragedy occurred. An Aggie fan by the name of A.B. Sessoms um, was killed. And no one really knows what happened. Um, And this is sort of where the fact and legend start to take different paths. Apparently, a group of enraged Aggie fans returned to College Station and began planning their revenge. Um, The legend has it that they armed themselves with a howitzer cannon and began coming back up to Waco on a train. But before they could get here, the National Guard got wind of their strategy and ended up blocking the train tracks by cutting down several trees. Mm. Now, whether or not that's true, that's pretty much lost to history. But what we do know is that tensions did increase between the two schools to the point on December 8th of 1926, Baylor President S.B. Brooks and A&M President T.O. Walton signed an agreement that canceled all athletic contracts between the two schools. And in fact, Baylor and A&M wouldn't play a, uh, an athletic event again until 1931, which happened to be one year after the Texas Cotton Palace closed for good. Interesting. It's surprising that the Cotton Palace closed since it gained so much national and even international recognition. What turned the, what turned the tide? What happened? Well, you know, it was a very popular event. For, for tw- over 21 years, it, was, it played host to more than 8 million visitors to Waco. In ni- for instance, in 1918, they had a record attendance of 547,242 people. In November 3rd of 1923, they had a single-day attendance record of 117,000 people. But like a lot of places around the United States, they just couldn't escape the Great Depression. And on Sunday, October 19, 1930, the gates closed for the last time. Hans, memories of the Texas Cotton Palace stayed with the residents in Waco for decades. And I know that in 1970, a new tradition was born, the Cotton Palace pageant. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people didn't really get over the closing in 1930. And over the next couple decades, people shared memories and experiences. And by 1968, they decided to put those memories together and create a new pageant. So a committee was formed, and after securing a $10,000 grant from the Cooper Foundation, a new musical was written to tell the story of the Texas Cotton Palace and Waco's history. And in 1970, the new Cotton Palace pageant was born. How did the residents of Waco react to the new Cotton Palace production? Was it well-received? It has been well-received. It's been a very popular event. In fact, it's become sort of a community and even statewide event that's been running for 39 straight years. And basically, it's a two-hour production that's currently being held at Baylor University's Waco Hall. It features a cast of more than 200 performers from around the state. And along with performing, it also has a philanthropic element to it. They provide annual scholarships to fine arts students at McLennan Community College and and Baylor University. And also, local fifth graders are invited every year to dress rehearsal to learn a little more about Waco's history. For 2010, is poised to be a milestone for the pageant. Not only will it be the 40th anniversary of the pageant, but it will be the 80th anniversary of the closing. So I can imagine it will be a very special production. Okay, I understand that there was a cookbook created to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the pageant, and that you, in fact, have a favorite recipe from that book. Well, you know, I I do, and (laughs) I think, you know, any, any good Texan will appreciate this recipe submitted by Lucille Saunders. It's for Big Red Ice Cream. And apparently you take 
two 15-ounce cans of Eagle brand condensed milk, or perhaps another kind at this, this point, one quart of whipping cream, one 10-ounce package of frozen strawberries, slightly thawed, three cans of Big Red, of course, one half to one extra cup of milk. You blend it all together, and after it's frozen, it should yield about four to five quarts. And now, while I haven't made it yet, I'm really thinking of making it and trying it out. It sounds pretty good. Call me up. I may try it, too. Um, besides the pageant, are there currently any other reminders of the Texas Cotton Palace around Waco? You know, th- there are. You know, there's a new city park located at South 15th Street and Cleveland Avenue called the, the Cotton Palace. And it has four lighted baseball and softball fields and full concession areas and warm-up areas in each field. It's, it's a really nice park. But the biggest reminder might also be the most subtle reminder. Over at Lover's Leap in Cameron Park, there's a seven-foot slab of gray Georgian granite. And mounted on the granite is the main building cornerstone from the first Texas Cotton Palace. It was, hmm. it was designed and donated by the late Albert T. Clifton, who was the first president of the reactivated Cotton Palace in 1910. And it now stands proudly in Cameron Park for all visitors to see, much like the original Texas Cotton Palace. Thank you, Hans, for sharing this intriguing part of Texas history. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. If you would like to learn more about the Texas Cotton Palace, the Texas Collection on the Baylor campus has the largest collection of Cotton Palace-related documents, books, letters, photographs, memoirs, diaries, and magazines and newspaper articles. You have been listening to the Treasures of the Texas Collection. For more information, Google the website, The Texas Collection at Baylor University. Treasures of the Texas Collection was made possible by the generous support of William and Kathleen Wardlaw, the Texas Collection Guy B. Harrison Jr. Endowment Fund, and the Baylor University Libraries. (laughs) 